We've been investigating the ins and outs of holiness, holiness, here from 1 Peter 1. We've talked about it being an overflow of the grace of God. We've talked about it being this um, deliberate choice to steer our thoughts toward Christ and the, and the character of God, how the character of God is the, the basis, the foundation, the model for holiness. You remember the passage of be holy for I am holy. That was in there. We distilled the injunction that uh, uh, the action point for holiness that we are to uh, have wholehearted obedience. We're called the children of God, obedient children of God. And then we talked about holiness, the word meaning separation. That is the people of God. We are called out, marked as his people, we have a different worldview than the culture, uh, different relationships than the culture, uh, different values of the culture. Uh, when we say we're different and holy, it doesn't mean that we're weird, all right, that you stick out like a sore thumb uh, because, you know, you dress like you just got off the Mayflower. That's not what makes us holy, what makes us holy is that we are a people who are different in how we operate, different thinking, different heart. But there's a crown jewel of holiness. And this is what is talked about in verses 22 through 25, and that is love. It is our love that separates us from the rest of the people on the earth. Let's stand as we take a look at our passage together. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we don't claim to know everything there is to know in the Bible. We don't claim to have this Christian thing down perfectly. We know that we sin, and yet in the midst of all that, we still know that you're working in us. But I pray that you would especially work in helping us to love well. Father, make this a benchmark for us that we love so well that there's a, a marked difference from the rest of the culture and that, that our love truly make us holy. Thank you for how you've demonstrated this in this body. I am so thankful, grateful, pleased with how it's demonstrated on a daily basis with many people here. But even at that, we know that we have room to grow. So make it so with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a saying by Tim Stafford that I wish I could say I believed it all the time. Maybe intellectually I believe it all the time. I certainly don't always practice it, but here it is. 
I would rather be cheated a hundred times than develop a heart of stone. I would rather be cheated a hundred times than develop a heart of stone. None of us like being taken advantage of. None of us like being lied to. None of us like being disrespected. We'd like to stop those things. But we know that if we harden our hearts, that there's the possibility that that becomes more permanent than temporary. There's a danger to that. There's a writing called A Twinge of Nostalgia that says this. I asked God to take away my pride, and God said no. He said it was not for me to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to make my handicapped child whole, and God said no. Her spirit is already whole. Her body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and God said no. He said that patience is the byproduct of tribulation. It is granted. It's, it's not granted. It's earned. I asked God to give me happiness. God said no. He said he gives blessings. Happiness is up to me. I asked God to spare me pain, and God said no. He said I must grow on my own, but he will prune me in order to make me fruitful. I asked God if he loved me, and God said yes. He gave me his only son who died for me, and I will be in heaven someday because I believe. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me, and God said, ah, finally, now you have the idea. When we love, we're finally getting it. Don't you remember 1 Corinthians 13? You know, you can have all, you can prophesy. Man, you can just preach the lights out. You can have all kinds of stuff going on the stage. Awesome music. Okay? Healing's going on. Place just blowing and going. And if you don't have love, nothing. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. We've seen the examples of this in our body. I've already mentioned it. And I am thankful for that. Some of you have practiced this in uh, very expressive, demonstrative ways. And I am so grateful to see that. And I think we'd all agree, even with all of that, that's taking place, we still have room to grow, right? We've still got room to grow. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There are a couple of ways to look at this passage. One, I think, fits the whole of Scripture. Another, not so much. One way is to look at this as um, men as the acting agent for purity to take place through our obedience. In other words, men are purifying as they obey. His obedience brings about the purity of the soul, and this is needed to love well. Now, obedience is always needed for the believer, right? We're always called to be obedient. But is this saying... One must be entirely obedient 
for love to take place? I mean, I could be obedient, let's say, as a, as a parent and as a spouse, but in my money, I'm not being obedient. So does that mean I have no ability to love? Is there a direct relationship like that? Well, frankly, answering that question is nearly impossible. But does this represent what the text is saying? There's another possibility. Another view is that the obeying the truth is the act of believing the gospel in salvation, which has an effect of purifying the soul and putting us in a position to love unlike we did before we knew Christ. I prefer this position given the context, the flow of this passage. When Paul uses the term purify, he's hearkening back to the Old Testament, to the Levitical priesthood. And the act of purification or the slaying of a sacrificial animal, sprinkling of the blood, made things holy, including the altar, the priests, the Levites, the rebuilt gates and walls, and even the people of God themselves. We read in Chronicles, for their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, and any work for the service of the house of God. By being holy, they were purposed for God's use. So, I am holy in my driving, I am holy in my marriage, holy in my parenting, holy in how I handle my money, holy in how I watch a sports event by me responding in ways that reflect upon the character of God in my life. It stands out as being representative as God's people, right? Right? We are purified through the cleansed blood of Christ who was without blemish. And that's the redemptive plan foreordained before the foundation of the world. That certainly is what starts it. Now we, I don't think, can love like this passage is describing before we knew Christ. It is why we read in Ezekiel, a massive change has to take place. And here's what it says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The idea is that our hearts have to change in order to keep from being like fleshly stones to one receptive to the Spirit of God and to the needs of others. It's not always so. We look at the problems of war. There's always been war. This one is pronounced. We, I get it. And it's serious. We see the political infighting. We see um, religious division. 
But at the core are the hearts of people. Right? I mean, I'm really hoping for Major League Baseball to get their act together and to get this collective bargaining agreement. I love baseball, but I have so had it with billionaires arguing with millionaires. And the problem is the pride of man, the heart, unwilling to compromise. And we see it everywhere because that's who we are because we have a flesh ourselves. But that's the core of the problem. The changes only come by a change of the heart. God giving us a new you at conversion through the gospel. Here's the implication. Is that some people don't have the capacity to love like Peter is describing. Because they do not have this new heart. I know that may sound judgmental. I don't mean it to sound judgmental. I just want it to sound biblical. That there are some people who can't love like this. Non-believers, I think, can do individual acts, but it's a different bird than a heart that is still fleshly, that's instead of one owned by God. An unbelieving mother can do acts towards a newborn, but might be absent from the love of God in her heart. It feels like I'm bashing newborn mothers, and I don't mean to do that, but the, 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 the point is that just humans on their own cannot love like this, right? The heart is still fleshly, entangled to self. I mean, listen, we understand some of this, don't we? Um, you know, when, you, when you're in a relationship, you don't get all you want, your needs aren't met, what do you do then? Is your automatic response to love? Thank you, honey, for criticizing. I, would you please give me more so I can love some more? No. None of us operate that way. Because you know, the, the flesh is going to rise up. Right? We're all entangled with this. So, the flesh does not have the capacity to love. By ourselves... Okay, I don't think we can love this way. And I don't think the unbeliever can love this way. Jesus even looked at religious people, the Pharisees, and he pointed the finger at them and listened to what he said. He said this, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You know, for people who say that Jesus was not judgmental, they got it wrong. Because he judged, but he judged clearly and accurately and always in truth. He could see inside their heart. And he said, you guys don't have a speck of this love that I'm talking about. John wrote again about it in 1 John 3, 16 and 18. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You know, some can grow up in evangelical churches their whole life and still not love purely and sincerely. It starts with a cleansing from sin. And when we obey the truth, we trust the gospel, we allow for this purification to take place. And then it's a, it's a daily cleansing. Then we go before the Lord, we humble ourselves before the Lord so that we can love well. Peter uses two words to describe this love here in this one verse. The first is phileo. We've heard these words before. It means a brotherly love, one of affection. And then the second word that's used is agape. It refers to a deliberate act of sacrifice for others. When God saved us, he not only gave us a new love to express, but he gave us a new family to express it in, a church. And so there's a brotherly love, a mutuality that we enjoy. It's like a a laboratory for our faith and love to take place. That's the way it's supposed to be. I have talked to dozens of pastors in the past couple years, and every one of them has felt the effect of pandemic procedures, political uproar, and racial strife. Every one of them. One pastor in Texas told me his church, which was uh, bigger than ours, lost half their congregation after the pastor addressed in a sermon racism. He's not pro-CRT. He is not BLM. He's pro-Bible and address those issues because there was a problem in their community. Some would rather hide behind political rhetoric and denials instead of facing the sin. doesn't mean everybody is doing it. It just means it's a problem. My point is that the love of God transcends these issues, all of them. Instead, there are Christians who create their own silos with people who agree on all their issues. And I'm suggesting, I don't think that's how God designed the church. I think there's supposed to be some diversity, differences, not just race, but other differences. That's why I am so thankful for this body and the way that many of you express this love in a sacrificial way. Listen, if this was easy, then I don't think Peter would have jumped to the second word used for love in this verse, and that is agape. This is where it is sacrificial because of our commitment to Christ. This is where it really comes in. It's unfeigned love without pretense, without acting out a part, like, you know, that's the meaning of the word hypocrite. You're acting It loves like God himself. And God loves us. Listen, God loves us when we are unlovely. There are many Christians who've grown up within 
a Christian subculture that only believes that God loves them when they perform well, but you get out of line, by God, you are done. I don't think that's the voice of Scripture. I think God disciplines his children, but I don't think he annihilates them or throws them out. God loves the unlovely. God loves us even though we might feel he's against us. I've known many Christians who feel that, but that doesn't stop God from loving you. And here's one. God loves us even when we don't agree with him. <laughs> I don't think that he's, you know, clenching his teeth and all upset about it, but I think that it's just part of being human. We don't always get it. If God's love is not agape, we're toast. That's the truth of it. Phileo loves when we're treated fairly and it's usually reciprocated. Nothing wrong with that. But agape loves when we are treated unfairly. We are called to both. We are not called to a cold religious duty, as I've heard others say, I'm going to love you in Jesus' name, but I don't like you. I've heard that more than once. You know, I, I get what they're trying to say behind it. Very awkward and probably not a good thing to say. Because agape love is sincere without hypocrisy. It's done willfully from a wholehearted devotion. It's what is meant by earnestly. The loving heart is one that does not wish that person ill will. I heard recently of a story of Lincoln. And uh, he was in a, uh, a meeting, and it, his political opponent was in the audience. His political opponent had criticized him. And Lincoln, who was uber sharp and would often mimic his opponents, did so and kept at it and at it and at it to where the crowd was just uproariously laughing about this man, and the man started crying. Lincoln found out about it and went and apologized. And it was said of Lincoln that he regretted that until he died, that he basically ran that guy into the ground. There's a lot of running into the ground today by even who call themselves Christians. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, that you know we have a moral stance on a lot of different things that our culture is not into or that certain political parties do not believe. All right, And I have a stance on those, but that does not give us the right to be unloving. We are to lead with grace. We are to lead with love. And sometimes that's not always reflected. The, the church, I'm talking about the church as a, as a whole. Again, the heart is one for the loving heart that does not despise the person. I'm not pretending it's easy. I know it's not. And our passage is making clear that all believers have a calling to love, and I think this sets us apart from the world. Because you know what the world does? 
it cancels those who they disagree with, right? But we're called to love. Jesus says, love your what? Enemies. The world holds grudges. We forgive. Even when the person doesn't ask for forgiveness. That's a high standard. You know what this does? This makes us holy, set apart, different in the best sort of way. But let's not miss what Peter is also saying. And that is that all believers are given the capacity to love because our hearts are purified. Listen to that. Peter's not calling us to an impossible task, although I know it sometimes it seems like it. He's imploring us to exhibit love because our hearts have been purified and Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And verses 23 through 25 expand on this. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, verse 22 was the injunction or the commandment. Verses 23 through 25 is the um, premise that supports the practice. Your salvation is permanent and imperishable because the word of God is permanent and imperishable. Since that is so, know then that your love has been supplied with eternal and imperishable resources. We often lose focus on this. We often lose focus on Christ instead of the times at hand. My heart goes out to the believers in the Ukraine. As I've heard of people who are in the States now but who visited that land and visited churches or missionaries that are still there laboring. And I'm wondering, okay, what would they think by reading this passage? It was written to persecuted believers, right? I mean, as, as bombs go off around them, you fear troops are coming to lay siege to your homeland. What is your hope then? You can certainly appreciate that they might feel powerless. You might even be angered by the military encroachment. Yet as believers, we are reminded that God has given us something that is imperishable and our mission is to still love and we find purposes in the relationships that remain. You know, if you're in a situation like that, you realize your life has not turned out like you had hoped, like you hoped maybe a couple years ago or maybe hoped even last week. But your life is still valued by God and your contribution is still noted by God and your faithfulness still rewarded by God. C.S. Lewis adds this, war does do something to death it forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 
do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I'm inclined to think they were right. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness and centered in this world, were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupidest of us knows. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of men, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. That's what you call a dose of reality. Peter said it this way, all flesh is like grass and withers and falls. Like a seed that never dies, but is fit for eternal growth, our salvation is given to us by the word of God that is living and abiding forever. Peter compares our bodies with grasses and flowers that will all eventually die. However, the word of God remains forever and it provides the fuel for our salvation to also be eternal. And the word of God is the instrument that conveys this new birth. That word, when Peter wrote that, would have been the Old Testament scriptures and now we also have the benefit of the New Testament scriptures. How does this impact love? Well, let me ask you the, the, the question this way. How can I say I cannot love that person? I cannot love that person who believes the wrong doctrine about, I don't know, tongues, eschatology. I cannot love that person who does not agree with me about politics or how to respond to the pandemic. I cannot love that person who's caused me to be hurt. I'm not asking these questions to be provocative, but these are real-life pressure points to which Peter would respond and say, you have an immeasurable resource and an eternal salvation as your possession, fueled by the everlasting Word of God with Christ in you and you in Christ. How can you reply to God that it is impossible when he's given you endless resources to love? Amy Carmichael said, recently I was sent a picture of a jug into which water was being poured. The idea was that love or whatever we need is poured into us like that. I don't think of it so at all. I think of the love of God as a great river pouring through us as the waters pour through our ravine in flood time. Nothing can keep this love from pouring through us except, of course, our own blocking of the water. Do you sometimes feel that you've got to the end of your love for someone who refuses and repulses you? Such a thought is folly, for one cannot come to the end of what one has not got. We have no store of love at all. 
We are not jugs, we are riverbeds. Interesting perspective. Certainly by application, we are not to allow our flesh, our arrogance, our stubbornness block the eternal supply of love. Our virtual call yesterday with our Guatemalan care point was a home run. I mean, I am so grateful for Kim Gray, who has headed up this ministry and done a marvelous job. So thankful for Gary and Jacob that set up the technical side, uh, for Jamie and Laura who worked with the youth in their presentation, and for Luke and Dana who prepared the food. I was reflecting on why it was such a delight to connect with friends over 2,000 miles away. I mean, certainly there's been a great investment of money and time on the part of this body over the years. Uh, we've seen dozens of people go to Guatemala. Uh, we are motivated by the mission of helping children. But maybe it's as simple as this, that at the end of the day, there is a genuine love for the children and the staff there and then a genuine love reciprocated to us here at CCC. We're simply doing what love compels us to do. That has been developed over years, this loving relationship. God's love is our supply. I'm challenged by that because I think when you experience that, then you have to ask yourself, all right, is, is that same supply operating in my home, that love, to my neighbor, to the person who's not politically aligned with me? Am I leading with love and respect? That's maybe a greater challenge than loving people 2,000 miles away. When love operates freely, like how Peter is describing it, you know what that's doing? That's showing us as being a holy people. Not everybody loves that way. And let's be honest, for every one of us, we haven't always loved that way. We go back and allow the river to flow again. We confess. I like that story of Lincoln because he went and he apologized to that man. And he, he allowed himself to be humble and realized he was wrong. There needs to be a lot of humility, right? We have a lot of declarations about how right we were, how wrong a lot of other people are. It's a lot rare to find people to say, I was wrong in my lack of love. And I think that's what God is calling us to.